0: Hello again, America and potentially other countries. Uh, This is Dan Blewett and this is episode 54 of the Dear Baseball Gods podcast. So it's been a couple weeks. I hope to get on a pretty regular schedule from here on out where I'm not missing multiple weeks. But, you know, it's been a tough, uh, tough summer, tough end of the summer. And the topic of today's podcast is going to be my recent trip to the Dominican Republic, which was to coach a youth baseball team as a coach for uh, Caliendo Sports International. So that was a pretty interesting, fun, uh, eye-opening experience, and I was really thankful that I got to go and lead a a great group of kids on that. So um, before I begin, just remember uh, you can find me on pretty much all forms of social media. So if you don't follow me, be sure to because I'm putting out new content each week on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Snapchat, Twitter. Medium. So if you're interested in articles and all that sort of stuff, follow me on Medium. Uh, Obviously, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, we're on all those for this podcast. And then YouTube and danblueit.com. So it is the off-season, so if you're looking to get better, uh, feel free to check out one of my online courses. They're pretty exceptional, if I do say so myself, helping to get a pitcher prepped for next year so if you want to make some major changes definitely check out my my online courses my book and i'm adding some uh to the lineup in the next month or two so without further ado uh, so i got hooked up with with Pete caliendo who has also he has a great podcast called uh, baseball outside the box so i highly recommend you check that out he has a lot of great guests on his podcast and uh pizza baseball guy he's from chicago And he's been running cultural tours for baseball players for a long time. So I spoke at the Illinois High School Baseball Coaches Association back in January, and I'd actually been uh, hounding Pete a little bit on the internet trying to to sneak my way into a European Baseball Coaches Association seminar. I was really hoping to speak and travel the world a little bit. So when I saw him at the seminar that I was speaking at in January, I said hello Um, just made chit chat and asked what he had going on and all this sort of stuff. And, uh, as we got to talking, he's like, well, you know, let me listen to your talk and, uh, we'll see how it goes. Basically if I think you're worth, you know, I think you're worth a crap. So, um, I got up there and, uh, gave my talk and we chatted a bunch afterwards and kept in touch and I actually was on his podcast. So check out my episode with him. I explained a lot about my uh, history with my elbow injuries and, uh, shared a lot about my story on his podcast, but Pete's a great guy, uh, big heart. And so he eventually invited me to coach on one of these tours. So my team, along with, uh, two other fantastic coaches, Darren Gurney and Darren Seiler, uh, from New York and, and Maryland, actually my hometown, Maryland, uh, respectively. They, uh, they both been on trips with him before. This is my first time, but basically we had uh, a group of 12 kids, Uh, From all over the country, so most of them were from my state, Illinois, Maryland, New York, because we sort of, as coaches, helped recruit kids for this trip. And uh, we did have a a Louisville, Kentucky native, one of our best players. And uh, so we went down there to then tour the Dominican baseball academies, and it's an exciting opportunity for them because they get to meet, you know, American players and uh, play against us, and usually beat our brains in. Although that was not really the case on this trip, and we in turn. Uh, get to learn about their culture, get to learn about how they run practices and games. The kids mixed and mingled. We did pregame with each other. Our kids would play catch and warm up with the other team, and so it was pretty cool to see. Um, it was pretty cool in general, but to see the kids just like quickly become friends with these boys from another country with a language barrier between them, really just through baseball. So we uh, we went through and we toured. I think we played. Two doubleheaders, so the first two games the first two days were doubleheaders. We completely ran out of pitching after that. After that we played single games for the next four days. So I think we finished with uh, with eight games in six days, if that's right. I could be miscounting. But either way, a lot of baseball. So every day we had a game or two and we went to these different academies. And when you think of baseball academy in the United States, like mine, Warburg Academy or whatever, there's tons of great academies, very lavish facilities. Um, these are not like that. These are a baseball field, uh, in the middle of, you know, a small town or in the middle of a bigger field in the middle of an agricultural kind of area. Um, and it's a pretty beat up kind of field. Um, you know, they lined it in a unique way. They put dots. They had this little coffee can that I assume had like a little mesh uh, bottom and a long stick and they would kind of dab it on the ground. So they would put like a baseball sized, dollop if you will of chalk every foot or so i assume just to save chalk rather than lining the line solid but you know these fields were you know they didn't have irrigation and obviously it's super hot down there the sun beats down so some of the fields had grass some didn't on the infield um, but all of them were like relatively rough and even though these kids these Dominican kids were really exceptional fielders they still made a lot of errors because just the fields are so unpredictable and the hops even no matter how good your hands are the hops are just very unpredictable so, you know, there was a baseball field. Usually it was a big square enclosure with a main baseball field and then maybe a baseball field in left center or in left field, right, and then in dead center. It might just be this big open area, kinda of like you would have like a municipal soccer field where there's a big soccer field out in the center, then there's a baseball field, and then there's another baseball field, just like you know, a typical like kind of parks and rec setup. So most of the academies had that where they had like a real small diamond, the big high school size diamond or they had one diamond with a fence here and then another one, you know, on the outfield of it with, a, you know, another field for like the smaller kids. But so most of the academies had one to two fields or one main field and a bunch of little, like kind of practice diamonds within it. But again, these were, if this was a field in America, I know both teams, um, as spoiled as we are, would walk up and just like scoff at the field and think this was garbage, blah, blah, blah. But these kids just, they didn't, weren't they were on phase and they just go out there and work hard and, Take ground balls, and when they miss one, like didn't flinch hardly. So, we uh, we played these academies, and you know, we had very gracious hosts. And after the games were over, all the kids were told to bring like little gifts, like baseball cards, or gum, or like airheads, or um, you know, paracletes, a hat, whatever, and exchange it with another player from the other team. So, we just give them a little gift of uh, saying thank you for having us and, you know, just with the understanding that they don't have a lot over there. So, you know, as we played these other teams, uh, depending on how good each kid was, kind of depending on how good his equipment was. So as I heard from one of our tour guides, Kid Mateo, who's going to school in the United States, um, he speaks relatively good English. And he kind of gave us, like, the he kind of filled us in, said, yeah, you know, if players are really good, and you know, they'll attend the academies for free and uh, the coaches will make sure they have, like, good cleats and good gloves and and good bats, and this is relatively speaking. This is, like, a a pair of cleats that were used but are still in good condition, not, like, brand-new stuff. Like, none of these kids have ever had a brand-new pair of cleats, glove, bat, any of that in all likelihood. So, but as you looked at a team of nine kids on the field and, like, another 20 to 30 either on the bench or just hanging out in the complex, working out and doing baseball drills on the sidelines – um, you know, if you had a group of these 30 of these kids, probably five, six of them didn't have cleats on. They just had turf shoes because they didn't own cleats. Another handful had cleats, but the, the cleats were worn down so much that they just essentially weren't cleats anymore. Um, you know, kids with like the wrong size glove or a glove that was super duper old and worn. You know, a lot of kids had like a 2000s, but they were clearly hand-me-downs and they it was the only glove they probably ever had probably been used for five plus years, Um, just, again, everything they had they were going to use until it it basically broke because if a kid had a glove, that was probably the only glove he was going to get and it was probably given to him by somebody. So, you know, I think it was the first time for a lot of these American kids seeing um, players with aluminum bats because they usually, when we were told, they almost always used wood bats, but they always had aluminum bats that were, like, donated to them. But they would, because our kids were using metal bats, they would often swing, it was about a 50-50. Some of the teams still swung wood some of the teams swung metal if they had them and most of these metal bats didn't have any paint left on them like some of them did some of them didn't but I don't know that I'd ever seen personally a bat with no paint left on it at all like a nice modern aluminum bat not like one from like 1980 but like a pretty modern bat that's just been hit so many times and thrown on the ground so many times it literally had no paint left and uh that was pretty common so it was, I know, an eye-opening experience for these kids who I know a lot of them, and even on my team this summer, kids are like, oh, yeah, my bat's got no pop left. It's like, well, <laughs> imagine how much pop it's got when it's got literally no paint left on it. Um, you know, I, I remember that vividly, actually, a kid telling me that his bat had no pop. It seemed like it still had pop to me. But, you know, just all these little things that we think about in America that are essential to playing well really are just not that essential at all. You know, the, the difference between a $400 bat in America and a $200 bat is you know, a small rebound rate um, and how fast they can, or how close they get to being illegal, basically. You pay more money, so it's closer to the certification limit, right? If the the BB core certification is whatever number it is, say it's 100, like 100%, um, that's just, again, an arbitrary number I'm making up, you know, the best bat might be like a 99, where it's like super close to being illegal, whereas you pay $200 for a cheaper bat and it might be like 90%, you know, to the, the way to being illegal. So, but down there, they just want to have a bat, you know, and, and most of these kids again swing wood and uh, like the size of the bat and they, they're just trying to get their hands on anything that they can go out there and have a normal game and, and play with. You know, I, I brought two gloves uh, that I had just had that were old that I didn't really use anymore. And uh, I got tons of donations from our, our families at Warbird Academy, which was very gracious. And I took a huge 50 pound bag of cleats and gloves from them. And so I got to hand out those at each game and I'd give it to the coach and they would run around and say, okay, well they like, they would know which kids needed cleats. So I'd give them my cleats and they'd give them to the right kid. I'd give them a glove. They'd give them to the right kid. But, um, you know, it was just a, uh, it's an eye opening experience just to see what a number one, how good these kids still were despite this, because there were no kids that weren't good at baseball. There were zero of them. And these weren't like, you know, when you say like, that these kids paid for, to go to these baseball academies. Some of them paid, some of them didn't, from what we were told. Um, the best players maybe didn't pay, but if they sign professionally in the future for $100,000, their trainers at these academies might get 50% of that. So they're kind of playing on um, what's the lawyer, the lawyer, a contingency fee, where if they get to the pros, that money then gets paid back. But the kids who aren't quite as good, a lot of them then do pay, and they pay somewhere between 100 and 200 pesos per week to train at these academies. Now, if you you're wondering what the exchange rate is, that's between two and four dollars American. So that won't even get you one bat wrap. I, I think lizard skins, like the popular new wrap for your bat, like for uh, the handle. Uh, so that wouldn't probably even get you one bat wrap. But that's what they pay for, basically, to be these academies from 12 or from 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. or so. And then uh, our host, Mateo, he said he would go back like after lunch and go there for two, another two or three hours and train. So six hours a day, <laughs> uh, probably six, seven days a week at these academies for 2 to $4 per week. So that was kind of the deal for them. And when you just take that many reps, you're just going to get really good. And you see all these players, the way they're taught, they're taught very, very similarly. You see the big league actions with the way they feel ground balls. Every kid – They have these smooth hands. When the ball hits their mitt, they funnel it right to their middle. And if you don't know what funneling means, just jump on YouTube and and type it in there. You see tons of how the infielders absorb the ball into their center with soft hands. Uh, Every kid down there did that. Zero kids push the ball. Like the way a lot of Americans throw with a low elbow, quote-unquote, and I don't like this term, but quote-unquote throwing like a girl, You know where your elbow's a little low and you push the ball. Zero kids I saw down there threw that way. All of them. Through well, through very well for their size. And uh, I'm sure there were kids that we didn't see that just got weeded out. I'm sure they just weren't good enough to play these academies. But we saw zero players who had a below average American arm. I mean, every kid essentially had at least an average arm for whatever age they were at. So if they were 14U, the average – I mean, and, and we were a 13 to 15U team. We were a mix of 13, 14, 15-year-olds, and we were supposed to play – Groups of the same age kids, and we were down there. And for the most part, we did, but every team had like kind of a mixed bag. So we faced some 16, 17, 18 year olds each game. Um, there were a couple of times where our 13 and 14 year olds went up to bat against a kid throwing 87 to 91. Uh, kid, the Indians, an Indian scout showed up to one of our games to scout two players that hit against us. And one of the kids was uh, a hitter who was very, very good. And there was a pitcher that he had to see there too who was sitting. 89 to 91 and uh our kids hit against them we had 14 year olds hitting against 90 91 miles per hour but 14 year olds down there threw 80 miles per hour on average and 15 year olds threw it varied still but it was like up up to about 85 and then above that it was you know it's still a mixed bag they're still human beings they don't all throw fuel but they all threw very hard very very well uh, we had a catcher and we had a lot of players that played for us because we kind of ran, you know, with a team like this assembling from around the country, it's not cheap to go on one of these trips. Um, the positions that each kid played was kind of varied. We didn't really have like, a full pitching staff. We ran out of pitching pretty quick, especially having to wait a couple of days to get kids back in there when they threw in the first game or two. And so we recruited a bunch of Dominican kids to pitch for us and to, and to catch for us. And we had a mixed team at times. One of these kids was 15 years old, throwing 80 down to second base, had a legit like one nine pop time, and he was just unbelievable. But that wasn't really that exceptional down there. Like it, it was exceptional, this kid, but there were just so many kids who were significantly better than average for American baseball at the 14, 15, 16 U level. We saw again, like for from, from the 16 to 18 year olds that we saw pitch against us, we saw a lot of 85 to 90. And that's not that normal here in the States. It's getting more normal than ever. There's still a lot of incredible talent in the in the United States. But just these random little fields where it didn't seem like these were, like, major academies, um, a lot of really good players and a lot of really good arms. So with all that, um, I would say that the Dominican players kind of lived up to what I had been told about them from a lot of my minor league friends, where that when minor league when Dominican players get signed and are put in the low levels of the minor league, so that when they sign their first contract and they're starting at the bottom of pro baseball like everyone else, that they have a lot of talent but not a lot of baseball skills. So they throw super hard, they swing super hard, they can field, uh, but just that's kind of it. They swing and miss a lot, they don't hit breaking balls well, they don't throw a lot of strikes as pitchers. That's kind of the report that I'd always gotten. Obviously, and that can be easily said about a lot of American kids as well. But that was sort of the report. And the, the term, the little little coined phrase about that is that you don't walk your way off the island. That raw talent, you know, if you throw hard, you'll get yourself off the island. If you can hit bombs, like you'll get yourself off the island. So showing these tools, how hard I can throw, how hard I can hit the ball, and trying to hit dingers and just like do all these exciting things or the things that excite scouts... There's some legitimate some legitimacy to that. Man, I'm stuttering, but uh, it kind of rang true in, in the way we um, saw some of these players play against us. So we our team went five and two. We were an okay team, I would say, from the talent level I've seen between that ages. But we played like pretty good defense uh, when we pitched. We pretty much threw strikes. Our hitters had very good at bats, especially being overmatched and seeing more velocity than they probably ever seen at their level. Um, and we ended up going 5-2, and two, and it was in large part because we were walked so many times. We were walked probably 20 times one game in a game that we wanted to blow out. Um, it was the pitchers against us really struggled to throw strikes. And so we would see 10 different pitchers in a game because first kid go out, he'd be throwing hard, walk four batters in a row, uh, we'd get a hit or two, you know, played a bunch of runs, they'd pull him out of that inning, get another pitcher in there. He'd be throwing hard. You know, maybe gets out of that inning. Next inning, couple walks, couple hits. They get him out of there. Another kid comes in, throwing hard, and same thing. Couple hits, couple walks. Um, and it, it, understand, we got shut out by some kids too. There were some very good pitchers that we didn't sniff, but there were just a lot of pitchers that had very good arms that just could not throw strikes. So uh, we probably saw nine pitchers per game on average against us. And uh, so it was just uh, it was interesting, and they made a lot of throwing errors too. Um, because it seemed like time they threw the ball, it was like 110%. There were no soft throws, whether they were on the run, whether they were thrown to the plate, whether it was the catcher throwing to a base, they threw that thing hard. And I think that goes back to how hard they, like, why they throw so hard. But they did not, like, ease off anything. It was 100% game speed. There was never a time where you saw a kid not hustling. There was never a time when you saw a kid not giving his all on literally anything he did. And there was never any pouting in the field. There was never any half effort. There was never any "woe is me." Like kids made errors because the fields were rough. Like and they made throwing errors and they would pat their glove once in a while, like upset at themselves. But they got right back in there and they just did it again. And so as far as like you know the quote unquote playing the game the right way, like these kids played the game super hard, and and it was impressive just to see like their level of effort and competition and drive just in the hot sun and the fact that they're out there playing on these rough fields with, uh, and, and there, if you checked out my Instagram or my, uh, my Snapchat or my article, medium about my experience, which I, I suggest you check out. It's called the path of La Otra Banda. Um, most of these kids take ground balls every day with baseballs that they have that when the cover wears off, they just throw it away and they tape it with athletic tape and then they just keep hitting them. So I took a couple of photos of buckets of, of balls there and there's a wheelbarrow full of balls that just most of the balls are just taped. And, uh, they don't care. They just keep playing and they don't need all this fancy stuff to continue to get better every day. And again, you could see that just in their dedication, their competitiveness, their hustle, all that stuff. It was, it was really impressive. And it just shows you just how much you just, you just don't need all the fancy stuff to be good. And you don't need to have the fancy wristbands and the the fight and necklace and all this stuff to, to feel like a good ball player to, to take the field every day. So you know, and it was, I know it was good to see our team. There's a lot of really caring kids and, and parents and, you know, we uh, we had to have purified water. Otherwise, we probably would have got sick from drinking the lo- local water. So we had, you know, our, our sort of tour guide named Manny. He uh, he took care of us, got us to the fields and, and arranged all this stuff. And uh, Manny brought us a cooler with a five-gallon, you know, office, one of those blue jugs full of purified water and a, Bag of purified ice, and uh, in a lot of the games, the kids from the other team were coming over to fill their little water bottles up with water. And I kind of asked my coach one time, like, "Well, do they run out of water?" Like, obviously, it was fine. Like, they're drinking our water. I'm like, "Do they not have water?" He's like, "No." I'm like, H- "How? How do they not have water?" He's like, "They just don't." He's like, "They just. A lot of those kids probably haven't eaten today, and a lot of those kids, if we weren't here with this water jug, they would just be thirsty." And you're like, ah, God, that just, that just sucks. And they don't even complain about it. It's, it's a shame that that's normal. It's a shame that that's, I don't know. I don't know that you'd say that's accepted. That's just the way it is. And if we hadn't played there, a lot of these kids would have played in the sun with no water. They would have had to go somewhere and find water. I don't really know. But you just, again, you just take even the little things for granted. Like, oh, I'm thirsty these kids were, they showed up to play with knowing there wasn't going to be a water jug in the dugout. And they probably showed up with a little 20 ounce, you know, like recycled water bottle or Coke bottle that they drank out of before. And when that was empty, that was empty. And thank goodness they were here to share our jug with us um, and get refilled because otherwise they wouldn't have had anything. So it's just like all those little things combined. Again, it, it sounds so cliche that you go somewhere and you know, oh, you appreciate what you have, but You know you really do and uh like i've been told this by other people but just how wealthy even the poor are in america they're very wealthy compared to the poor you know in a lot of other countries third world countries so it was uh it was a fascinating experience in general and so there's a couple things in addition to that that you know there was a kid who pitched for us his name was wiley and uh, he pitched against us, I think, for an inning. And then uh, we needed him. He was one of Manny's guys. So we needed some pitching. So we asked if he could pitch for us. And he uh, started a game, went five innings for us, and, and beat a team on our behalf. And he's probably 5'10, 5'11, maybe 160 pounds, 85 to 87 on the mound, throws strikes, like really, like throws strikes a lot. And uh, like really nice slider. Just an overall very polished young pitcher. I think it was 16 or 17. And he uh, probably doesn't have a future in baseball. And it's a, it's a shame because down there, and it was very plainly known that if you're a position player, you've got to be signed professionally by 16 or else you're going to be just too old. They're not going to sign you. And if you're a pitcher, you have a little longer. You have until you're about 19. Um after which time if you haven't signed yet like you're just pretty much done playing baseball competitively and like you're just gonna go get a job and start whatever phase two of your life looks like on the island and so as I looked at this kid Wiley really kind like nice kid he just love baseball was happy to be there and help us he uh, was with us for a couple of days he pitched the one start and then he pitched a couple of days later through like, again inning um but uh he wasn't a big framed kid, you know. He was a small kid like me. He's like five eleven, getting like 160 pounds. So even though like the, the velocity, if he was in America at that age, he'd be heavily recruited. He'd be a, a probably Division one or Division two, like fringe Division one kind of kid, like strike thrower, 85 to 87. If he fills out, he's probably throwing 88 to 90, and uh, you know he's probably gonna be a Division two or Division one type baseball pitcher. But down there there is not there's you just don't have that middle ground. When you're 16 or 19, you're either turning pro or you're done. And so imagine like put yourself in those shoes as an American. You know, if your kid doesn't get called in the MLB draft as a senior in high school, his baseball career's over and he can't play competitively anymore. That's really sad to think about and it's really crazy. I would have been done. I would have had anything past that. And most kids it's hard to get drafted obviously most kids would just be done. That would be it. And, uh, so it's, it's hard to put yourself in that, in those shoes. You're like, ah, this kid's so good. He's got so much potential and he's so young, you know, in America, he'd have till 21, 22 to get drafted when he was a junior or senior in college. And you look at him now and he's, he's small and he throws hard. He's got a great arm, really fast arm, uh, four or five more years of development, he'll easily get to, to pro baseball, you know, like not a hardly even a, a doubt, but he's only got two years left and he's not very big to where they're going to like fall in love with his frame, and his projectability and all that stuff where he's probably not going to be a draft, going to be a, a pro sign. He could, I hope he is, but just looking at him, you're like, hmm, he's probably not going to grow to be six three, so they're probably not going to need him. And it's just a shame because he doesn't speak English. So there's no real route for him to go to an American college or something like that. And uh, that's probably just going to be it for him. So I just remember watching, you know, obviously, like the the kids with the lack of equipment, all that stuff, um, heartbreaking. But, you know, even more like you think about all these kids and how they could potentially get to an American university and potentially thrive, And have more time to develop and get an education, all the stuff, the things that college baseball gives you, just don't have access to it. Like, this is not going to happen. And as we talked, uh, we talked with other coaches about, you know, how can that change? Like what he's like, it's just not really going to change. Like, it just takes a lot of money to get a kid from a country like that to America. Like, who's going to pay for his education? Uh, If he doesn't speak English, how is he going to pass American classes? You know, and, uh, and after that, like the visa process to stay in this country is apparently extremely difficult. So it's just a, a situation where you just kind of shrug your shoulders and you're not really sure what's going to come of it. Cause when you think, okay, you know, we could get tons of equipment together and bring it down there for them and, and really help improve their baseball experience. Like that's great. But, um, given a kid, some cleats and a glove, Is kind of like giving a man to fit or giving a man a fish. Whereas if you set up some sort of support system where they could learn English and then potentially go to an American university, that's like giving or teaching them to fish, right? You're giving them the more ultimate tool that they're looking for. Something that would ultimately change their lives more than a pair of cleats or a pair of glove or a glove or a bat, even though they desperately need that stuff. And actually the our, our friend Mateo told us that the biggest thing they need is actually helmets. He told us that a kid was was killed recently because, and we saw this. Um, we didn't see him get killed, but we saw the fact that most teams only had a couple helmets. So kid comes up, gets a hit, he's on first base. Kid comes up, gets another hit. He's on first and second now. One or both kids run in, give their helmet to the guy batting, and then they run the bases without a helmet on. And uh, our friend's like, yeah, he's like, it's really dangerous. And he said, a kid got hit in the jaw he was sliding to third base he didn't have a helmet on he got hit in the in the jaw and he just died right there so you know just like all these little things um you know they don't have helmets and you imagine like losing your son or your little brother or your your nephew uh because you just didn't have basic equipment to stay safe on the field i mean those kids hit the ball hard and they throw the ball hard so that all those errant throws i mean if you think, and, I, and I, I had that moment when he told us that story, I thought back about all the times when during our summer, like a base runner was running the bases and a ball, you know, he's sliding into second, hits off his helmet, goes in the outfield. Obviously kids getting hit when they're, when they're batting or just, you know, sliding into third, just run the bases. Like kids get hit in the helmet a surprising amount of the time in uh, the course of a baseball season. It's not like a ton, but it's probably, I don't know, ten between my team and all the teams we played, you know, both sides of the baseball probably 10 times a summer, you know, someone gets something gets deflected off a helmet. Um, and you wonder how many of those, if you magnify that or multiply it through all the teams, all the baseballs played in the country, how many times would a kid get hit in the head? If they're all running the base without helmets, it'd be a lot. And there'd be a lot of serious injuries because of it. It doesn't even have to kill them, but just any head injury, especially in a, in a poor country that medical care might not be accessible to someone like that. And they might just have a serious head injury and uh, I don't know. So it's just, all, again, all those things just make you think about what you could do to improve um, the lives of kids like that and and the country in general, um, just the state of baseball in the country, because they certainly get good at baseball no matter the circumstances. They don't let any of that stuff hold them back. But, you know, a lot of kids, I mean, they were extremely thankful to get a new glove from us, to get a new pair of cleats. Uh, we did have some helmets to give, but it's just uh, – it's just a tough situation. It's a, it's a very it was a very worthwhile trip to see, a just to see another culture, and uh, just to see, a the good I think in in young boys and how they could bond with these other kids from other cultures. Because again, like every game afterwards, you know they give these kids a little gift. But even beyond that, they just they were smiling and like talking to each other and like doing little like weird baseball lingo to each other, and uh, they just like genuinely bonded with each team very quickly where they were just like their new friends even though there was a, a language between them so it was really cool to see that but we uh, we did visit a, one of the academies that we played was an orphanage and so it wasn't I guess I don't know if you really call it a baseball academy but we played against the orphanage and it was called La Otra Banda which is uh, translated into the other way and they had a big ceremony for us the padre the father there he, uh, he talked about I mean, he just over and over just said how thankful he was that we were there. That they were so thankful that we were there to play him because um, I think more than the other academies, they uh, I think you could probably just get feel lost at a place like that. Obviously, you know these kids don't have parents, and for I think it's just very easy for them to just continue to live this life where no one knows they're there. And I think for us to be there and play against them and show interest and there's all this this excitement and buzz about our meaningless baseball game it just seemed to perk everybody up for that day so we had a nice ceremony and both countries national anthems played I actually started I, I couldn't hold in a bunch of us they played this version that had apparently apparently it's the full version of the national anthem which i never heard of the star-spangled banner there's like so many verses past the ones that they sing that I've heard literally a thousand times for every pro baseball game apparently there's like many verses past that and they kept playing that And as we were sitting there, you know, being respectful of of my own national anthem, I was just like, I started to giggle. I'm like, this is still going on. I'm like, I feel like, God, we're so spoiled. We even have this enormous, just obnoxiously long (laughs) national anthem because theirs played in like a minute and a half. And ours is typically a minute and a half. But it just kept going. It was like five minutes. I was just like, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. But. Um, so I le- apparently learned what my real national anthem is like in another country. It took me going a thousand miles over water to hear my national anthem for the first time but it was like this big deal they had this big ceremony and afterwards they had us all in for like little uh, snacks and refreshments and the kids just like all the boys were just like kind of in the corner of this this cafeteria just like laughing and and I don't even know how they were like laughing like they were somehow just, like, translating just enough. And it was, uh, like I said, it was just, just really special. And they were really appreciative of the, the equipment that all the players and families dropped off and donated. And um, you could just tell it, just, it, it meant a lot that they were there just to, just like, hey, they made some new friends that day. Because I think it's something that we all take for granted. I know even the players that I played against who, like, their parents never came to their games, you could just see how that weighed on them. And... You know, I'm lucky that my parents, they came to, like, pretty much all my baseball games. You know, they, they tried, and even uh, when I played in Camden, New Jersey, which was very close to my house in, in Maryland, but still a 90-minute drive, they came to, like, 40 games. And uh, they'd sit there, and they'd make that drive up and back and sit there for the six minutes I'd be on the mound, or I wouldn't even pitch when I was a reliever. So. Um, and that always still meant a lot to me because you always think as a player, like just like when you're a little kid, you're like, Hey, Hey mom, look, look what I'm doing. Like I did this cool thing. Like that's a big part of just being a kid and to think that they never have that. Um, so I think it was, it was special. It was good to see the American kids just take such an interest in them and just uh, the connection they made. Cause it's, I think that's uh, harder than most of us would realize to grow up like that. So overall it was a, a very cool experience. Um, I know a lot of the parents that went and the players were very moved by it. And it was, a uh, like I said, a very humbling experience and it just gives you, it just really does. It just gives you a lot of perspective on what the importance of baseball and how, you know, you, it's such a huge industry in the United States and it's such a big business and everyone's trying to get to college baseball and so much money is thrown at baseball, 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 and all of this money into equipment. And uh, it's, it's a lot simpler than that, really. It just can be some worn-out bats and gloves in a worn-out field, and that's okay. And uh, I think the core of any sport, which one of the few things that I remember from my philosophy classes is that the Latin word disporto is where the word sport comes from, and it just means to carry away, and it carries people away from their problems. So, you know, for a lot of these kids growing up in, in poverty – Uh, baseball carries them away from that and it's a potential way to a better life but even if it doesn't ultimately lead to the major leagues or to the minor leagues it still carries them away for that day gives them something to be excited about and gives them something to look forward to the next day so I know it's uh sometimes we lose sight of that in America where we're just so consumed with getting the next flashy glove and the next flashy bat and what college we're going to, and, and all this stuff, and take such pride. Oh, my kid plays at this college, and he's better than your kid because your kid plays a lower college. And it's uh, baseball is just it's still just a game, and uh, we still just need to play it the right way, and just understand that it's not really that big a deal. It is a big deal because of what it can do for people, uh, especially in that sort of situation, like gives them hope. But it's still, just it's kind of a game. So that's all I got for this week of Dear Baseball Gods. I uh, apologize for my sabbatical, but I'm going to have a lot of new content coming out soon. We have hit the fall period here in Illinois, which is exciting for me because I just get into a better routine um, and uh, all like all this stuff is just sort of on the, on the side trying to give back some of my knowledge. And uh, so I hope to be podcasting regularly, more YouTube videos regularly, Instagram and Snapchat and Twitter regularly and continue to put out some more courses and and articles. So feel free to check those out. All right, we'll see you next week on Dear Baseball Guides.